1: And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. Got a great show planned for you today. And I was telling our folks, the Know Your Risk Radio OGs were with us from the beginning on KVI, 770 AM here in Seattle. For those of you that don't know, due to radio program, due to... Reasons I don't even understand and can't explain to you. That is the one station that airs the first three minute segment. Uh it doesn't work in the programming any other uh, any of the other stations we're on. So anyway, um lot to discuss, obviously. A lot to discuss economically. Um and we've got the interview that was supposed to be out today. Um, we've got that happening either Monday or Tuesday of next week. So keep an eye out for that. And we switched it up. Um, cause I wanted to do an interview on the economic side, but I also, well, we had a really, and we should, it, it's looking like we'll have that one that I wanted to do today. Uh, it looks like we'll have that one ready to go by the end of next week. Um, but considering everything that's going on in the middle East, Israel, Palestine, all that kind of stuff, I wanted to do a show. I want to do an interview focused on that side of it. So that should be dropping Monday or Tuesday. So keep an eye out for your inbox. And that will be in addition to the Daily Dots. We'll keep doing the Daily Dots like normal. Um, And for those of you that don't know, I want to reiterate, just keep an eye out. If you listen to the show, listen to the podcast ever, we are still doing those Daily Dots every single day. Um, we've ran out. Well, it's be no surprise to the people who listen to the show. We run over quite frequently, but the goal is to have a 12 to 15 minute segment. You can listen on the way home from work or whatever, and just summarize what happened in the economy and the markets that day, everything pertinent that occurred. So you don't have to go and listen to some blowhards or talking heads on CNBC for an hour and sit through commercials and blah, blah, blah. We're going to give it to you all in a condensed version, tell you, filter it out all the important stuff that you need to know. And, um, The reason we want to do this is just document it. We think we're living in fascinating uh, economic times. Uh, I think very scary and disconcerting geopolitical times, but we want to document this and we want to learn from it too. I, and I can't reiterate that enough guys. It's, I just think it's such an important time to know what's going on and to watch what's going on and to observe what's going on all throughout the process, because you are looking at an economic puzzle right now that is really unlike any other that we've, that we've, you know, negotiated. Um, And so there's a learning opportunity there. Right. And you're watching, it's like basically like watching a global economic experiment, um, which I think is fascinating. And that's why we have a generally negative outlook because the factors that are in play and, and it is different this time, right? It is decidedly different when we look at the, the things that have occurred COVID and everything that's occurred since then, it's created enough abnormalities and um, unique situations to where you have to keep an open mind about out you know uh, about outside the box type of conclusions right at the same time it's fascinating because there has never been a time in economic history here in the United States modern economic history where you have not seen these combinations of forces and factors not result in a fairly steep and fairly significant economic downturn. Um, And clearly the market, most market pundits are like, Oh no, really? And I will acknowledge (laughs) that that is potentially possible. I just think the flippant way and the dismissive way in which, That whole recession idea is treated in the way everybody assumes a soft, quote-unquote, soft landing is the most likely outcome. What fascinates me – well, it's one of the reasons I do this job. One of the things that fascinates me about this job in general and markets in general is the way that human beings assess risk. And so that's – this whole non-recessionary soft landing thing is a perfect example. Is that possible? Sure, right? Basically, anything's possible. But to have that as a base case when it has never occurred, when you are looking at factors that 100% of the time have resulted in recession, having the posture of completely dismissing that, while they may end up being right, it's still a fascinating position to take because it's never happened that way before, right? So you're like confidently making your base case something that has never occurred, right? And that's why I say in finance, there are times where you're wrong, but you did the right thing. Right? There there are times where it didn't end up that way. But if you were to if, if you were presented with the same set of data or the same set of circumstances, the fact that it didn't turn out that way should not dissuade you in the future from taking the same course of action. Right? Because if you if you go up against that set of circumstances 10 times, well, (laughs) nine times out of 10, they're going to be right. In this case, it's 10 times out of 10. So to confidently have your base case that it's not going to happen, it's just a fascinating thing for me. And while they may end up being right, and people will crown them and be like, oh, they knew it. They called it all along. It doesn't mean that it was the right decision. It was flippant at the very least, right? It It was a it was not an odds on bet to take right it, it, the numbers were not in your favor and i hope and then there are people there'll be people that hear me say that and they'll be like oh well that's crying over spilled milk he hasn't gotten it right obviously it wouldn't be no it, it's hey and i and i and i will gladly admit that i'll give you an example i didn't think i stayed i stayed cautious way too long in the bounce out of uh um covid now one of the reasons and I will, you know, I've got no problem admitting this. And I said so at the time. One of the reasons I stayed so cautious is because we didn't get hit in the downturn. And when you don't get hit in the downturn, it always makes me more apprehensive to jump back. Right. right. You already missed the bloodletting or at least the first and most significant round of it. You know, you've got time, right? Just sit back and see the way things unfold. You're not trying to dig out of a hole. So. But but you know that's a perfect example of of yes I was wrong I got it wrong I I did not think that you would hit new all time highs within fourteen months right uh, I didn't think the stimulus would be as effective as it was I thought more people would hoard it that's traditionally what's happened in the past um anyway. So just that risk management aspect of it that, oh, it's soft landing. You're just like, why in the world would you have that as your base case? Should you entertain that as a possibility that has a higher likelihood than it did in the past because of all the unprecedented things that have happened? Yeah, I think that's fair, right? But your base case when it's never happened before, right? Like you may win. It's sort of like betting on the bottom horse, right? The horse with the biggest, you may win, but- you do it enough times, you're going to go broke, right? So anyway, let, the other thing I want to talk about a little bit here. Um, I know we say no politics. And and I'll reiterate again, I, if you guys don't know this, it's not because I'm afraid to talk about politics. It's not because I'm afraid of taking people off. I really don't care. Um, but that's kind of one of the advantages of doing a radio show like this when you're running a a financial firm, right? It's, I'm not worried about losing listeners or, you know, it's not, not my primary, not, not my primary job, not my primary source of income, not even close. But, um, I just feel like when I listen to all the nonsense out there, I just feel like, uh, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to, I would like to speak on the topic. um, Obviously, we're all watching what's going on in Israel. I have been absolutely appalled. And the right word is probably not shocked. Um, I've mentioned for a long time and I've said for a long time that one of the things that concerned me on the extreme left, so I'm not talking about, you know, your average Democrat neighbor across the street. I'm talking about on the extreme left, especially in the elite academic circles of the uh, uh, extreme left. Um, There's been an undertone of anti-Semitism for a long time. What has blown me away about this particular circumstance is the nakedness of it. The unbridled enthusiasm of saying atrocious things and having what I think are morally repugnant stances. right? Like the moral equivalency – of Palestine to Ukraine, right? I think the Ukrainians have every right to defend themselves. And in that effort, I cheer them on. I don't think that we have played the right role in this. I don't think that the Russian-Ukrainian situation deserves bloodlust on our parts. And the reason I feel that way is because while Russia is clearly the aggressor and clearly wrong, which is why I am cheering for Ukrainians and hoping that you know they can hold out. Uh the uh, equating that to what's going on in Palestine and Israel is just first of all, it's just historically illiterate, and I, I find it morally repugnant. Why? The 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 reasons that I think that we should be cautious. And we should be less vociferous as it relates to our role or our stance on the Russian Ukraine thing is Russia and Ukraine are about as close to a civil war that you could possibly have without being a civil war. We're talking about two cultures that are virtually identical, and I'm sure there's difference differences, you know, in Ukrainian I'm, like I'm, you know, it's but the differences between Ukrainian and Russian and culture are kind of like similar between the differences of East and West Coast United States, right? These are two these are two countries that were part of the same country, you know, just what thirty five years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah, thirty, 30, 30 yeah, 35, thirty five, thirty three years ago, something like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons I've been cautious is because. You know, it's like the old adage don't find a land don't fight a land war in Asia, right? Well, don't get involved in somebody else's civil war. And I'm not saying you should not get in the way of genocide and atrocities. But I just think you've got to walk very carefully because what because what is what is the most likely outcome when you involve yourself? It's sort of like getting involved in somebody else's family fight. You are not gonna win. And you're probably gonna leave with both sides ticked off, right? Because they're the family, and you know we saw it in Vietnam, right to a certain extent it now it wasn't a civil war, obviously, but you know it's it, you saw it in Afghanistan to a certain extent. but when you have when you have and again i i I understand and totally agree that it's the issue in Afghanistan was not civil war, what I'm saying is the dynamics were similar. Because there is sort of a civil war, right, in Afghanistan. It's the Taliban and everybody else. And you get in there and you go anti-Taliban. But the minute you leave, they're going to take back over. And then the people that were pro-America are now ticked off at you because you left them. Taliban's ticked off at you because they've always been ticked off at you and they hate you, right? It's a, it's a similar dynamic. And so with your best intentions, you end up going in there and, and, and spending blood and treasure. And you leave no better off than you got there, but with more people hating you right? It's just, and, and it's, it's tough. It, it It's tough because you're sitting there watching these things that you have the ability to stop or at least, you know, restrain. But yet at the same time, you got to balance it out. And, and I, you know, in those times, I think that countries need to be somewhat selfish, right? Like, can we actually do any good here? And does it justify the price that we have to pay? You go, what about the price they have? to? Pay? Yeah, but Look, the politicians haven't sworn an allegiance to defend their country, right? They, they've, I, I want our politicians' primary focus be on the security of our armed forces. That's their job, right? Other countries need to worry about their own armed forces. And as a human, do I, right, the humanitarian aspect? Yes, I get it, and I, I want to help everybody. You don't want to see any of these things happen. But, you know, this isn't, a, we're not third graders. The world is more complex than that. And sometimes you got to take really bad medicine that tastes really bad because it's the least bad thing to do. But the moral equivalency between these two things is just disgusting to me, right? That is, a civil, that is effectively a civil war in Russia and Ukraine. Palestine and Israel couldn't be any different or, or couldn't be any more different, right? These, these are not similar cultures. These are not people that have been the part of the same country, right? And additionally, a really easy way to look at this for me is if Palestinians were to lay down their arms, the conflict would stop. If Israelis laid down their arms, there'd be genocide. They'd be wiped off the face of the earth. right? So, And then equating the, the, the most repugnant thing to me was equating the beheading of babies in streets with the death of children in Palestine due to collateral damage. They're, they're, they're all lost precious souls, okay? And I'm not saying an Israeli baby. What I'm saying is you don't attack countries the way that Hamas did because it results typically in the death of your babies and your defenseless citizens, okay? It results because war is nasty and bad things happen. These pe- This wasn't collateral damage. Beheading babies isn't collateral damage. That was a goal. And to make a moral equivalency, the other thing, Israel is an occupier. What a joke. What a complete joke. How how do you look at the history of those two people? And first of all, occupying what? The sovereign land? There is no sovereign land of Palestine because they've turned down the option to be a recognized sovereign state multiple times. And there's a lot of you know, geopolitical reasons and rules for why they do that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you a big component of is because they – a lot of those other Arab countries have treated this like a proxy war, right? How do you think Yasser Arafat died with what was it like an eight $900 million net worth? It wasn't because he was a smart businessman. It was the same re- reason he rejected the, the, the deal that Clinton, to his credit, almost had them at. Israelis were making massive concessions right around the end of Clinton's presidency. Bending over to almost everything they asked for. And at the last minute, Yasser Arafat turned down the deal. Why? Because the conflict was how he got paid. Right? If you stopped the conflict, the flow of cash into those coffers would stop. The reason they were paying them was as a, to, to be a basically to run a proxy war on their behalf. Because they hate the Jews too. As Israel handled everything correctly? No, I'm not saying that they have. But what are you supposed to do? Well, they've taken more and more land. Yes, in response to the invasions. What have there been four different invasions since 1949? It was a consequence of the aggressor, right? To the aggressor. Now, did they take some settlements here and there? Yeah, but it's been a, such a small percentage of the land that they've quote unquote taken. And taken from who? Those, but you, you can't pick who was there first. They've all, it's all their land. And that's just, that's just biblically, you know, because that's the you know, most accurate historical document we have at that time. But he, histor- they, they've been fighting over this land for over 2,000 years. Well, how is it that we determine that the indigenous people are Palestine? And that's a political statement. You can't – they're both indigenous peoples there. And I will likewise say that on a political basis, I don't you know on a spiritual basis or a religious basis, that's a different conversation, but on a political basis, I don't think either one has more right to the land than the other. And I think coexistence is, is should be the goal, but to call them an, it's just, just repugnant. And it's scary. It's scary. This, I was saying earlier, this is how Holocaust people, you know, everybody always like, well, that'll never happen again. Another Hitler. And you're like, Guys, what what do you see? <laughs> Anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism. People don't wake up one day and decide. You know, the, the people in Germany weren't supporting Hitler because he was the Hitler that we know today, right? It's a gradual process. It's a process of cognitive dissonance. It's a pro, It's a process of, uh, um, you know, whitewashing. It's a process of what? I'm blanking out. What is it? Propaganda. Right, But it happens over time. But this is how it starts. And that's kind of one of the scary things about it is one of the most vociferous and outspoken or anti-Israeli or anti sentiment is coming out of our quote-unquote best and biggest u- universities, right? The future thought leaders of America. It just scares me. And look, I'm not out there saying that they should be holding signs death to Palestine either. I'm just saying how in the world do you look at this scenario? You've got to be both historically – Illiterate and morally bankrupt to come out of here and post things like BLM did. Which was a picture of a hang glider flying in with the Palestinian flag, celebrating the fact that Palestinians invaded Israeli territory and murdered concert attendees. You you want to you want to know the difference between the two? That right there. There you go. Guy, just and it's not countries just become morally bankrupt anyway um that's all i have to say on that at this point but it just you just sit there and you're like where, where did where, where did we go wrong man so it, when we look in markets today i think a lot of that is being driven not i don't think a lot of this is being what we refer to as the war premium but this is also the things that we've been talking about guys i'm going to do another Uh, uh, I'm going to do a full segment a little bit later in the show on commodities, inflation, and the war premium. But this is exactly one of the reasons why we were saying your portfolios need to be repositioned. We have entered a new phase. And what worked in the last phase will not be the same thing that works in this phase. And you are horrifically underexposed to the things that you need to be exposed at this moment. So we'll get into that. But you see oil going up. That's what's going to happen anytime you've got threat of war in the Middle East. And to be clear, oil is not going up because the, of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Oil is going up on the fears that it's going to suck in other participants. Okay, that's, that's what that's all about. And then you see it in a surge in volatility today, a surge in gold, all of the classic things. Um, today is all about war premium and people being freaked out that this thing is escalating. That's, that's, what, that's the market update, right? Up until this week. Uh, bank earnings, JP Morgan came out with earnings that were decent, didn't surprise me. I don't think banks are going to start seeing these defaults and negative hits to their balance sheet until the first or second quarters of next year, possibly even the third quarter. Um, and with that much volatility in bonds, whenever you see bonds move like that, and JP Morgan's really good at trading these, usually JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are the ones that come out of these situations. When you see – because big volatility, whenever you see big volatility, big moves, look what's going on in treasury markets. Whenever you see things like that going on, um, it's a wonderful environment for traders, right, just because big moves are how you make big money quick. And JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are good traders. So that really doesn't surprise me. I also don't think it speaks to uh, any underlying health in the economy. I, I, and I don't think it points to weakness either. I think it's kind of a non sequitur. Uh, You're going to hear people extrapolate out that shows how strong the economy. No, it's just the bond volatility was historic and JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs per usual. Well, Goldman didn't have a great quarter, but JP Morgan per usual was on the right side of that. Um, But that's it. I mean, that's the story right now is the war premium. And, as always, if these kinds of shocks were up today, we, we've been, we've been raging back. I think we're down at one point. We were underperforming the market by about 21% on the year. It was when it's top. We were flat. I think we're, I think we've chewed that away to where now we're down nine or something like that on the year and closing. So it's been a good run for us, but, uh, making up for some loss, for some lost ground. But, um, yeah, it's going to be a wild ride. And guys, that brings me to another point. As we all know, especially in this environment, market conditions are constantly changing, right? And these advisors that are going to put you into a portfolio and tell you to ride the waves, they're not equipped to handle that level of volatility and protect your retirement portfolio. Okay, they're just not. That's not what they do. At Bulwark Capital, we're actively managing your portfolio to navigate these issues as they arise by utilizing our risk management strategies on a daily basis, Okay. find out how we're actively managing risk by requesting our common sense investing guide. So call us now at 866-779-RISK. Again, that's 866-779-RISK or go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com or follow me on Twitter at KYR Radio. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at KnowYourRiskRadio.com.
0: Do better in bull markets. Do better in bear markets. Pay less fees in all markets. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. You can subscribe to Zach's free newsletter, The Bulwark
1: Insider Report, at knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at
2: Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast.
1: Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for.
2: This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com. Investment advisory services offer through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management.
1: And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us or sticking with us, rather. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I, had, I, I spoke at a thing uh, this week. Um, oh, it, was a, it was a get-together here in, here in the Seattle area. Um And I was asked to come speak, basically talking about what 's going on in the uh world uh what 's going on with our own culture, and then my part of it basically was what 's going on with finance and I always get frustrated with myself when I do this. I went in and gave a talk that was very well received people were really nice came up talked to me a lot afterwards and had a great time um, but a couple of people came up and they were like, You know I really want to talk to you but I thought what you said was compelling, but I still don't understand any of it. And I get mad at myself when I say that, because I feel like one of the things that I am the best at is taking very complex issues and making them, you know, bite size for people. Um, And I don't think that I need to do that because everybody else is stupid and I'm smart. Um, I, I do this for a living and right. And so I, you know, it's like me talking to a mechanic. Of course he knows more about my car. Hopefully he does. In my case, that's not tough. Um, I'm not the most mechanical type guy, if you will. I mean, I built houses in, in the past, worked in construction sites and things like that, but it's not like, hey, give Zach the tool belt, he'll get it all figured out. Um, I am much better at this than I am at those kinds of things, which is why I hire professionals. Um <clears throat> anyway, but I, I wanted to spend some time because I think that you again, and I've said this on the show so many times, when you do something for a living and you're so close to it. I think you take for granted a lot of the nuance and you take for granted a lot of the lingo and you take for granted the fact that um, what, what is normal for you or what is, you know, elementary level stuff for you isn't for somebody else because it's not what they do and it's not reflective of their IQ or their intellect. It's not what they do, right? They don't speak that vernacular. So the deal with rates, why, why, why are we so focused on rates? Okay. Well, there's a lot of things, but let's start kind of at the basement of it all, right? The, the, the foundation. Stan Druckenmiller, who in my opinion is the greatest money manager to ever live, why do I say that? He ran a fund for 30 years. And I think over that time his average AUM was well over a billion dollars, his the, the amount of money that he was managing. And that's significant because when you see guys manage much smaller amounts, 30 or 40 million, it's, it's substantially easier to put up eye-watering gains with very small portfolios as opposed to larger ones. Because with the very small portfolios, you just have so much wider universe of things to invest in. You have so much more flexibility and ability to pivot, and it, it, it's, just, it's just much easier. But for 30 years, uh, Stan averaged 32% annualized returns and never had a losing year. He had two negative quarters over that period of time. The guy's a machine. And these are not fake uh, Bernie Madoff type returns. This is all legit, audited, one, you know, just 100% legit. The guy's a machine. And he made, well, he's made a lot of different comments. And I'm a huge fan of his and, and follow his work closely. But he made a comment that really stuck with me, which is, look, you have to pay attention to, do- to currencies and rates. He goes, if you get currencies and rates right and you get everything else wrong, you're going to make money. He goes, if you get everything else right and you get currency and rates wrong, you're probably going to lose money. And he couldn't be more right. right? Why? Because first of all, if you understand what's going on in currency and rate markets, it makes it so much easier to find the things that are going to be right. right? And what do I mean by that? Let's say you're looking at a foreign company. Let's say it's in Brazil. Brazil. And you do great research on that company, and you think they're going to be growing at 30% a year, and this is going to be their net margin. All that stuff's great, and you drill it, and that occurs, but their currency depreciates 60% against the dollar. It's a losing investment, right? You're up big in Brazilian terms, but then when you go to transfer the money back to your account, you've lost, right? That's a very simple example, but that's what I mean. Whereas if you make a similar investment, but you do it based on rates and currency and the company doesn't end up nearly as well doing nearly as well as you thought it would, but their currency appreciates 20% against the dollar, you come out with a win. Now it it may not happen just like that, but I think you get my point, right? So this is why interest rates are, are important. Why are we so myop, well, not myopically, but why do we think they're even more important today? Well, because over the last 15 years due to, you know, unparalleled central bank activity, money printing, buying up bonds. We know all that crazy stuff that's gone over the last 15 years. The world has built up the largest stack of stack of debt in human history. And when the debt caught, when the cost to service that debt, when the interest payments on that debt, right, because it's not like you can hit some tough times, interest rates go up and everybody goes, well, I'm just going to pay off that debt because now it's not favorable, right? There are some people that can do that, but that's not typically what happens. Right, What typically happens is a lot of players get over levered and if they lose their access to debt, they end up being forced sellers, which makes prices drop, right? So interest rates are extraordinarily important right now because we've, like I said, we've built up the biggest stack of debt in the history of humankind and it's, and, and, and it's, and it's at the lowest interest rates in human history. The other reason why it's so important is people go, look. You know, the Fed raising two or three points historically, that's not a big deal. And you go, but you're missing the point. When you go from five to seven percent, right? That was that like a 40, 45% increase on interest rates. When you go from zero to five hundred and fifty basis points or five and a half percent, it's a five hundred and fifty percent increase, right? So while moving from five to seven percent interest rates can have a slowing effect and have a punitive effect on asset holders, when you move five hundred basis points or five hundred percent, right, you are literally flipping the economics of most sectors and most assets on its ear. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go look at a six hundred thousand dollar house at a three percent mortgage versus an eight percent mortgage, same house. Same price, rates go up. And when that happens over a short period of time, you know, if a move like that happened over 10 years, it wouldn't be nearly as pernicious because it gets gradual, right? It's, 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 and, and, and you see this in economics and finance all the time. It usually isn't the move from top to bottom that gets you in anything. It's the speed, the the rate of change, the speed at which that change happens, because it flips everything on its ear. And, you know, in a perfect example of that, and you're going to continue to see this, you guys have heard me talking about commercial office space in particular. And what did I say? And I got, oh, this is hyperbolic. And I said, you're going to see 60 to 70% write-downs on some of these properties. And I was telling you, just saw one the other day where I believe the last transaction date was in 2018. And the property just sold at a 70%, was it 60%, it was either 60 or 65% discount to the last transaction price that happened in 2018. Why is that? Because when you were financing that thing in a zero percent interest rate environment and it was at full capacity, you were getting, you know, whatever money you put in, you were you were netting out a five to six percent return or a five to six percent what we call a cap rate, right? Which is a cap rate is like a think of it as a yield, right? An interest rate. If I buy this property, how much money am I getting back? If I buy a million-dollar property and I'm netting out after fees and expenses and all that other kind of stuff, $60,000 a year, I got a 6% cap rate on my hands, right? That's, that's what I'm getting. Well, when you get a scenario like we saw with COVID and the work-from-home deal, right, you create you, – you, you immediately – again, rate of change. It doesn't happen over a decade. It happens immediately. You immediately shrink the amount of space needed by a would-be lease or right a lease or leaser yeah lease or of the property you you, you change the economics of it drastically right because now you got 30 on average what said it's about 30 percent less demand for off you know traditional office space commercial office space right now And when that 30% happens in a year or two, that's a big problem. It doesn't give people time to adjust. And then on top of that, rates go through the roof. So that property that you owned or you bought in 2018 with a a 6% cap rate is now going to bleed you for 15% a year if you refinance it at these rates considering the lower occupancy. And this is why we were saying, hold on. We're not 100% sure that a recession is coming. But the only reason we're not 100% sure is because of the unprecedented nature of the environment we're in. When you look at those sets, when you understand the impacts, when you understand how levered our economy is to debt, and you look at all the underlying factors, it's just really, really hard once you factor in that less less credit available, and then the cost of it has skyrocketed. It's just very hard not to look at that and go, that's going to end up being a recession. Now, maybe government spending will stay recklessly high enough to not technically hit a recession, but I still think in that environment, it's going to feel like one. And that, to me, is sort of the best outcome, right? Maybe you get really close to having a recession, but you got higher than normal inflation. You got some job losses, but it doesn't technically go into recession. But, you know, if the unemployment rate goes from 3.7 to 5.5, that's a recession, May not say it officially because it didn't equate to, you know, smaller GDP two quarters in a row or negative GDP for two quarters in a row rather. But it's certainly going to feel like one. And so that's – and again, I mean go look at record credit card balances, right? Higher interest rates hit that too. All of these factors you just see sucking money out of consumers' pockets. So you're just – you're kind of doing the math on the back of a napkin going – Look, I'm not saying this thing's going to implode, but I don't see how in the world you can possibly think that this rate of consumer spending that we've seen over the last two years is going to continue forward. Not unless you also say it's going to be completely inflationary driven. I don't even see how that holds up, though, because of the access to credit. If credit was still cheap or substantially cheaper than it was now, and you didn't see any contraction in credit available, I'd be like, well, this thing could have legs because whatever, you know, we just know how the American consumer works. If there's still credit to be had, they'll take it. But, you know, that's the other issue. And why is credit tightened? Again, it goes back to rates. The banks can't lend as much money, they just can't. Why? Because a lot of their assets, right? Banks have to keep a relationship between the amount of money they've brought in from their clients, right? The, the people that bank there, and the amount of money that they keep on hand at the bank. And how do they keep that money? They usually keep it in US government bonds. Right? Well, when those US government bonds lose 50 to 60% of their value, which the long-end bonds, you know, 10s, 20 and 30-year bonds have since last January, that means that stack of available credit at that bank, right? The money that that bank has, the value, right? They put a hundred billion into those U S government treasuries two and a half years ago. And now that stack of money is worth 500, you know, what I say, a hundred billion. Now it's worth 50 billion. They, they physically cannot lend as much because they don't have as big of an asset, you know, base backing them. And that's an oversimplistic version of it a little bit. Cause you've got bank reserves and you got other things going on, but, that is – that's is, that's essentially how it works. So interest rates are a foundational piece of every economy. It doesn't just work like that in our economy. But the reason it is more pernicious here or the reason I think it will prove more pernicious here is unlike all those other economies and many of them are over-indebted too – and this isn't really an indictment. It has to do more with us being the financial center of the world, more available credit, leasing you know, or extending credit to a US-based business or, uh, or, or customer is by definition just seen as less risky in the world. There, there's reasons for it outside of just largesse and, and idiocy. But the US is the most debt-driven ec- economy on earth. So when you increase the cost of debt that drastically in that short a period of time, you just know that things will break because it comes, like I explained earlier with real estate, it flips all of those existing relationships onto their head. But you also know that it's going to drastically weaken the, the end consumer. Just by definition, right? You know, think about buying a house. Let's say you had to go buy a house. With You know, most of us that are on some kind of budget, we're going to have to buy a house. To be able to afford the monthly payments, we're going to have to buy a house at a much lower price than what we were looking at two years ago, right? To stay into our budget range. What does that equate to? Lower GDP, right? So that that's really why the whole rate thing is going on. And hopefully I made that simple enough for people to understand. And for those of you that do get it, I, I apologize. I just felt like you were like going oh, all this like elementary school. But I just think it's really important that people understand. We're not sitting here going – we're the only guys that know what's going on in the economy. What we're sitting here is saying, if you understand the way that this deck or this, you know, <clears throat> the board is aligned, right? You, you, you start to realize how ridiculous that this assumption that we're going to have a soft landing is, right? It, it sounds less like a debate between two guys and let's see who's right. You know, you start doing the math and you're like, wait, wait a second. How, you don't think consumer spending is going to slow down? How? How? Well, wage growth. And you go, guys, no. Wait, wait. Real wage growth, wage growth less inflation has been the weakest over the last two and a half years at any time in our history. Again, it's not just nominal wage growth. It's wage growth versus how much things have gone up in price. And it was like, yeah, but inflation's falling. And I go, which means things are getting expensive less quick. They're still going up. And you know what isn't going up anymore? Wages. So, Again, we don't have a crystal ball, don't know the future, but I'll just tell you this, this whole soft, this assumption and this belief is a base case that a soft landing is happening. When you understand these things, you can kind of sit back and go, look, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but holy smokes, a soft landing. Yeah. I mean that, that soft landing, like landing a 747 on an aircraft carrier. Cause that, I mean, that's the kind of soft landing it would require. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I won't ever say that it's impossible to anything cause I've done this job too long, but to make that a base case doesn't really seem like good risk management to me. And if you agree, and if you think this is a time for risk management, hopefully you figured out in the last year or two that owning a stack of bonds at record low interest rates, ain't risk management. And I'll say this again. I've been saying it forever guys. Guys, If you are still sticking with that advisor or that firm that had you in that stock and bond portfolio because stocks go down and bonds go up, the entire premise that they built your portfolio on, you have seen it fail. There's no question. I'm not sticking my chest out and bragging, but on the flip side, you've heard me on the radio for seven years saying, get out of bonds. There's no way to win. You're just sitting around waiting to get beat. What happened? So I'm not telling you to call us or call another firm like us because your guy's an idiot. What I'm telling you is the whole premise of your portfolio is flawed. And you had a guy on the radio telling you that for seven years and it's borne out exactly that way. Not because I'm a genius, just because we look. And my point to you is if your guy or the firm managing your money didn't listen to the federal reserve respond to the hottest inflation print since the the 70s and the Federal Reserve saying we're pushing rates up and Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, saying there will be pain. If your guy or your firm didn't adjust your portfolio based on that, then what are you paying them for? Don't. There is a better way. You can actually have the people manage your money, earn it by producing better results. And properly managing risk and not just saying, well, it always worked before. No, it hasn't. What you've seen happen with bonds and stocks is more normal than not. What was abnormal is the period of time where they worked perfectly inverse to each other from 1980 to 2000. That's the outlier. And they've all built a rule around that. Your portfolio is broken. Call us 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, KnowYourRiskRadio.com, capitalmanagement.com You guys know the drill. Going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and get into commodities, inflation, and the war premium. Stick with us. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at KnowYourRiskRadio.com.
0: This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach discuss key investment strategies across several asset classes, not just stocks and bonds. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com.
1: How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief
2: Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast.
1: Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is
2: exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to KnowYourRiskRadio.com. Investment advisory services offer through Tech Financial LLC and SEC registered investment advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management.
1: And we are back. Thank you for sticking with us through the break. Okay. So commodities, inflation, and the war premium. This is something that we've been talking about for most of the last year and a half. And today, now again, today doesn't make it the way it is, right? And hopefully, hopefully, some of the pricing in you see today of even worse outcomes than we're already watching in the Middle East. Hopefully those don't play out, right? Hopefully somehow life is spared and less blood is shed than than, than folks are worried about. Um, but more importantly, not more importantly, nothing's more important than that. But as it relates to our investments, th- this is precisely what we were talking about you've gone through a period of time where you've had a lot of serenity in financial markets and and and, and in global po- and, and geopolitical conflict and at the same time you pivoted out a 40 year run essentially for yeah about a 40 year run of declining interest rates and declining geopolitical conflict do you tame inflation Right, pretty serene environment for a very long time, and all of a sudden inflation kicks in, and at the same time geopolitical sentiment is heating up, and and that's why we were talking to you about. I guaranteeing you commodities were unrepresented in your portfolio. Why? Because there isn't it isn't an accident that geopolitics or geopolitical issues heat up in inflation, because as inflation hits, currency valuations become more volatile. Right, so. The the ability to trade with one another gets stressed. You know, think about if you're sitting around and your currency is depreciated forty to fifty percent against the US dollar, that's painful. Right? And people don't typically respond well to pain. And that's when crazy things happen. In this scenario, when you had the hottest inflation prints we'd ever seen, effectively, now we'd seen higher rates of inflation, but in terms of the acceleration, how fast we went from zero to where we peak out at seven, eight, that you you, you saw a rapid rise in inflation like we've never witnessed before, and you already had rising geopolitical tensions. And when you see a backdrop like that, you just sit there and go, I better up my commodity exposure. Why? Because when war starts happening, countries all around the world start stocking up on commodities and raw materials that they need to either fight a war or – to make sure that they have those commodities in the event that the supply of those commodities is limited or restrained because of war. And when you just step back and look at this scenario, I don't think it means that you should short the NASDAQ here and go long on commodities. I'm not saying that. What it does tell me, though, is that when you look up at how small, historically small, the weighting of commodity or natural resource type stocks are in the S&P 500. And everybody's invested in ETFs. I'm at least looking at you and saying, look, you might want to stay in ETFs, but you got to go pick up some commodities and at least get your portfolio back to a historically average weight in commodities, which depending on how you look at it, should be somewhere around 12 to 15% of a portfolio. Right now, you own the S&P 500. I believe that percentage is around four and a half percent. Okay, so you're just way underweight. And that's what always happens too, right? When these things happen, the average in portfolio and the average investor is least exposed to the thing they're going to need the most and most exposed to the thing they're going to need the least. And that's where really ugly returns come from. And that is why, you know, look, the whole buy and hold thing, it has worked over really long periods of times. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it's nonsense. Okay, but when you get into periods like this, you know, and, and don't take my word for it. Go back and look at 1966 to 1981 and tell me how well buy and hold worked then. You know what did work? Commodities. Do you know what you had back then? Hot inflation and a lot of geopolitical conflict. Right? So, and again, it's not saying, you know, that you're an idiot if you're doing buy and hold, but... Your confidence in buy and hold is because of a recency bias, right? It's worked so well. You just got off the back end of the longest and biggest U.S. bull market in all time. So, of course, you're a fan of buy and hold. But the winds have changed. And just look at the, you know, you got several examples of it. Like I said, the bond deal, right? You're seeing the old structures. You're seeing right in front of your face now the deconstruction of what has worked or what have been the themes or what have been the 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 common threads over the last 40 years. And it's not going to work. And if you're really close to retirement, w- will this eventually end again and will we get into a normal back to a normal state? I mean, I yeah, I would bet so. Right? Hope so. I you know, I think we will at some point, but who what does that take? Is it 10 years? Is it 8? Is it 15? Well, if you're going into retirement or you're close to retirement, depending on those numbers, that could make up anywhere between 25 to 60% of your retirement time. Do you have time to recover from those losses? Do you have time to spend 60% of your retirement trying to get back to where you were when you started? If you don't, there's a better way. We can build a portfolio that has less downside, actually more upside. We do it every day at less expense. And On days like today where people are getting smacked around, we're up half a percent. Now, I'm not saying we're going to do that every day. I obviously can't promise that. But what I'm saying is it proves that we're actually managing it. We're actually looking at it. We're saying buy and hold isn't enough. We got to make sure that you're out of the way and that you're going with the current as opposed to against us. And if that interests you, which I think it should in this environment, and the fact that a lot of the things that we've been warning you about for a long time, they're playing out right in front of our faces. If that interests you, give us a call, 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com, capitalmanagement.com You guys know the drill. Have a fantastic day and a wonderful weekend. We'll be back next week. Keep an eye out for that uh, interview dropping Monday or Tuesday. I'm not lying this time, and there's no way it's going to get pushed back. We're out of summer, so you're going to see it. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com.